You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your hosts, Chris Jennings and Dr. Mike Brazier. Today we have a special guest, uh, Dale Humberg, the former chief scientist of Ducks Unlimited. And also joining me is my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Uh, Welcome to the show, Dale. Good morning. Thank you. And today's episode, we're going to talk about the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. We refer to it as NAWAMP. We're very casual throwing NAWAMP around. And uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to let Dale and Mike kind of go back and forth. They're very knowledgeable on this topic, and they're going to explain what the North American Waterfowl Management Plan is. Uh, Dale, before we get started, can you provide us with just a little bit of background of, you know, how you, your involvement with NAWAMP, but also what you've done throughout your career? Um, I began working on waterfowl in the late 60s, early 70s uh, in North Iowa, uh, pretty much on the breeding grounds. Uh, went to school at Iowa State and Michigan State uh, with the sole intent, ultimately, of being a, a waterfowl biologist for a state. Um, I was lucky in that regard. Uh, began with the state of Missouri in the mid 1970s. Uh, worked as their waterfowl biologist for 25 years and the chief of their science group for five years before coming to DU as uh, chief scientist in uh, early uh, 2000. The listener may be thinking, "Oh, great! We're going to talk about a plan. This is bound to be super exciting, and we are going to try to keep it entertain- entertaining. Keep it." keep it high level, keep it casual. Uh, This is an important topic for a number of reasons. Anyone that works in the waterfowl management uh, enterprise obviously understands the the significance that this plan has had on on the work that we do. Um, But it's also important because as we go forward with additional episodes on this podcast, we're going to be referencing NAWAMP. We're going to be referencing joint ventures. And we want you, the listener, to have some basic foundation of of what it is we're talking about and why it's important. We can tell you it's important, but I think the type of information we want to bring to you today will help you understand why it's important and how it was – and why it became a transformational component of waterfowl management as it exists in North America today. So as we look back across the history of waterfowl conservation in North America, it's incredibly rich uh, in that history. It's incredibly rich in a lot of legendary figures that have participated in this inter- enterprise. Uh, there's, uh, it's rich in participation across all different uh, segments of society, whether we're talking about state partners, federal partners, uh, hunters, hunters conservationists, just people that that appreciate waterfowl and and wetlands. It's waterfowl conservation has attracted so many people, but also because of of these things, it's rich in complexity. And and that's that's partly attributable to the the migratory nature of these birds. Uh, They do not respect, do not recognize international boundaries or state boundaries or any kind of jurisdictional boundaries. So that really is brought uh, brought a lot of complexity and need for collaboration 
into this enterprise. And that really is where the North American Waterfowl Management Plan uh, gets its greatest, its, its greatest recognition, if you will. So with that background, Dale, what I'd like for you to do at this point is to help paint a picture of what waterfowl conservation looked like uh, prior to the North American Waterfowl Management Plan coming into play, I'm going to let you provide the you know the date at which all this happened, how it happened, but uh, paint that picture for us and for the listeners so they can have an appreciation for it. You know, if we think back just a few decades, um, oh, beginning in the '60s, uh, there was some pretty dramatic uh, declines in waterfowl losses of habitat and so on. And at that point in time, our primary response as waterfowl managers was with harvest regulations. And so, you know, even into the late 60s, seasons in the Mississippi Flyway, for example, were uh, 20 and 30 days long. Um, The uh, restrictions on bag limits were such that uh, numbers of hunters really declined, and and the response primarily was through harvest management. Um, Getting into the 1970s and early 1980s, we saw um, population recovery, um, but again, in the, the perception, at least, was that it was largely due to um, the, uh, the role of regulations. Into the 1980s, we began to get um, a pretty good idea that if we didn't think more broadly beyond regulations uh, with habitat management on the breeding grounds, in migration areas, and on the wintering grounds, we weren't going to be successful, that it had to be more than just the singular approach using harvest management. And that's what really set the stage for the North American plan. Uh, There had been efforts through the 70s to develop a national waterfall management plan in the U.S., for example. Uh, There were efforts within the flyways to develop flyway-specific plans, but there really was not the concerted effort to develop one that was international in scale, to recognize the full range of partners involved, but then understand also that the scale at which management occurred had to be regional because the biological needs of the birds were regional as well. The nature of the partnerships was regional. And so the North American plan really set the stage for this unprecedented collaboration across international scales, but then at local scales as well, and primarily with a focus on habitat management in addition to our efforts with harvest management that had been the, the rule before. Prior to the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, uh, signed in 1986, and we'll kind of get to that time frame and and go forward, prior to that point, there were habitat efforts underway by a lot of the states and a lot of the federal governments, right? But but the the difference was those were primarily of an acquisition type of focus. Is that – is that, uh, is that appropriate or is that sort of correct? Uh, certainly, as you go back far enough into the 20th century, that was the case. And I'm sure there were some management efforts that started to, to come underway there in the, the mid-20th century. But, but it was mostly all on federal and state lands, right? Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, duck stamp money is primarily oriented toward National Wildlife Refuge management. A lot of the state efforts were oriented toward managed public lands, um, a lot of the public lands were oriented primarily as shooting areas for waterfowl, if you will. And the emphasis was not necessarily on management of waterfowl populations across the annual cycle. And so the opportunity that emerged, the, the, the responsibility that emerged from the North American plan was a recognition that 
that the scale at which we were trying to acquire habitat, protect habitat, and manage habitat uh, was really local and specific to, say, state and so on, that if we didn't expand those efforts much more broadly and with a recognition of what happens at different seasons, um, we weren't going to be successful. And so, uh, no, I think you're exactly right. Uh, that emergence of the broader waterfowl management, waterfowl habitat management enterprise beginning in the mid-'80s and, and beyond uh, was, was certainly a sea change in the way we manage waterfowl. And this probably also gives us an opportunity, and I know we'll talk about this in great detail, detail at some point in the future, but this gives us a great introduction to the idea of why it's important to work on private lands. And that's one of the uh, – so prior to the NAWAMP, it was, a lot of it was state and federal effort on, on their, their properties. But in some of the important geographies for waterfowl, over 90 percent of the habitat that waterfowl depend on is located on private land. And so that was one of the key takeaways for me as, as I've gone back and studied some of the, the NAWAMP documents and some of the documents that preceded it. It was this very clear recognition that, as you said, we need to change the scale at which we deliver habitat. And we need to, need to find ways to deliver it on private land as well as public land. In other words, we can't sustain continental waterfowl populations on public lands alone. And that's especially true in some of the geographies of greatest importance to waterfowl. You look at the prairies as the best example, where in some locations over 90% of that habitat is on private land. You have to work there. And so that was one of the key things that the NAWAMP challenged us to do uh, and, and and I would, I would say we've, uh, we've achieved a great deal in that regard. Dale, with that, with that background on what the NAWAMP is, you, you were active in the waterfowl, uh, in the waterfowl community when, when all of this was happening. So you're a great person to, to bring firsthand experience of the conversations, of the perceptions. And so take us through that. What were you seeing? Who were the key players in developing this grand plan? And, and then also I, I've heard through the years that not everyone was fully on board with this. There were a lot of skeptics, quite frankly, who thought, yeah, this is great, but it's never going to work. Take us through what it was like being part of those conversations and how did it? How did we ultimately get to a document in the mid-1980s that folks could agree on? That's a good question. And, and certainly um, anything that is as bold, if you will, and as broad scale as the North American plan had uh, had folks that, that kind of raised an eyebrow when we just talked about uh, the extent of what was going to be uh, managed uh, when questions raised about how much is it going to cost and so early estimates of you know billions of dollars necessary to be able to achieve the North American plan of course were were really met with a fair amount of skepticism um, as you might imagine there were folks that uh, that felt that they had uh, had things pretty much figured out. And so the North American plan with um, a strong focus on habitat, with a strong focus on some regions versus others, uh, began to challenge some of people's perceptions of, of what was important um, and what their role was going to be in the future of waterfall management. Uh, obviously, the notable individuals uh, during that process uh, provided the leadership necessary. Um, some were states, some were flyways, some were federal, of course, both on the U.S. and Canadian side and ultimately in Mexico as well. 
And so uh, much of the anxiety, if you, uh, if you will, early on uh, came from folks that uh, pretty much made their professional living on waterfall harvest management. And so some of their um, role in this enterprise was being challenged. Uh, some folks that had made their living, if you will, on state-managed areas with that local emphasis were challenged a bit because this was much broader in scale than what they were used to working on. And so um, anything that changes as dramatically as has the North American plan uh, is bound to have some skepticism early on. I think that's healthy because any of those sorts of probing questions tend to just improve the plan further. And actually, over the last 30, 40 years, that's exactly what we've seen, is people posing new questions, posing new possible solutions, and the next plan, the next iteration of the plan brings that much further along than if we'd have rocked along as we always had done business. So, so yeah, no, good question. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. North American Waterfowl Management Plan, is that unique as, in a sense, is from a management perspective? Are there other um, species-specific plans um, out there right now? Or, or is this something that, you know, did, did waterfowl kind of set the stage with this? You know, the waterfowl scientists and managers, um, were they on the leading edge of doing, a, like, a massive conservation plan? The waterfowl enterprise, um, you know, if you think all the way back to the North American um, uh, efforts um, with the Migratory Bird Treaty that was international, uh, that was uh, through the, the convention and so on, um, established kind of the, the broad framework that had been emulated um, over time in some form or another for other species. Uh, the one thing that was probably most notable among waterfowl was that because it was international, because we were dealing with 40-plus species of birds, dealing with um, different regional responsibilities and so on, really kind of created an unprecedented scale of management and management planning that was really not something that uh, that most of the wildlife conservation enterprise had considered in the past. Um, and even to this day, uh, with the exception of, of a number of really notable bird management efforts that go all the way into South and Central America and so on, the waterfowl management uh, planning and implementation still has set the stage and is emulated, uh, copied by many other groups. The nature of the biology of waterfowl, uh, as Mike mentioned earlier, they're migratory, they use different habitats during different seasons and so on. They'll travel, you know, a couple thousand miles uh, throughout their annual cycle. Uh, really makes the scale of management and management planning way different for waterfowl than when you start dealing with uh, a species like quail and pheasants and whatever. That within a few square miles, you can pretty much manage um, local numbers and distribution. So waterfowl are different uh, from the standpoint of scale. The scale of the management's required 
to um, uh, accommodate that. As Mike pointed out earlier also, the, the scale of, of habitat management on the breeding grounds where birds are paired, distributed widely, is way different than it is on the wintering grounds. And so the nature of our management has to be responsive to those seasonal differences as well. But uh, in brief response to your, your question, uh, yeah, the waterfowl management enterprise, the North American plan specifically, has provided um, uh, a, a template, if you will, for others to follow. It's, it's one thing to put a plan together. Uh, there are the entire world, there, in, in the entire world, there is no shortage of plans that have been developed. And I think I would dare say that m- the majority of those plans are sitting on a shelf collecting dust. And I'm not just speaking about the natural resource community or the natural resources field. You probably That's probably um, human creation wide. It's pretty easy to develop, to develop a plan. But it's an entirely separate thing to successfully implement a plan. And that's what the waterfowl management community has done. And they've done it from the beginning. And at this point of the, of the conversation, I think we want to transition to describing what was in this plan and how, how did we go about being so successful with the implementation. So you and I have been involved in the, in the North American Waterfowl Management Plan community for, well, you for longer than I have, but I have been for about 15 years. And so we know there are some key components, some key hallmarks, if you will, of the North American plan around which all of our partners were able to galvanize. So help us touch on a couple of those uh, population objectives, um, uh, international cooperation, and then also joint ventures. We want to introduce that topic. That's going to be, be something we'll spend a fair bit of time on. But talk to us, talk with us about some of the hallmarks of the plan. What, what was actually in it? The Probably number one right up front is, uh, as you mentioned, um, establishing population objectives. Um, Most plans kind of lag, if you will, if there isn't a clear outcome in mind. And so the North American plan established as levels of populations in the 1970s, uh, the initial objective. Um, you know, the assumption was that those populations uh, were pretty reflective of pretty good habitat conditions. They were probably sufficient to provide hunting opportunity for the number of hunters that were available in the 1970s. And so first and foremost, establishing that population objective was was critical. Because what that does for you then is you say, well, now how much is habitat's going to be needed to support that many birds? Um, what's the distribution of that habitat? What are the birds using when they're in that part of the landscape? Um, Are they breeding there? Are they in migration? Are they trying to refuel their migration when they're in that particular landscape? Are they wintering there and and pairing and preparing for the migration back home? And so what that population objective does, especially when stepped down to those local and regional scales, is it really zeroes in on the individual Um, responsibility, whether it be a state, a local manager, a joint venture participant, and we need to talk about joint ventures in a bit. Um, But the point is that that objective for population numbers um, was just critical right up front. 
One of the other key elements of the plan at that point in time was it identified leadership. Um, Plans aren't successful unless there's somebody that's constantly driving them, both from an administrative level and at a practical level. Locally, how are we going to implement that plan? And so what the plan also did was it identified the scale of responsibility for each. Another key element of the plan was it said, here's the science that's going to be required to support it whether it's in terms of of survey outcomes, banding outcomes, um, uh, management, habitat management, and so on. And so it really set the stage for improving the science behind waterfall management as well. And so among those things, uh, certainly the population objective, the objective with regard to leadership, and objectives with regard to to what's it going to take to to achieve this. And that's where the dollar element emerged as well. Like I said earlier, the... uh, the uh, billions of dollars required to achieve the North American plan was something that raised eyebrows, but it it gave us a clear target. Here's what it's going to cost. And from the regional standpoint, here's where it's going to have to occur. And Dale, back at that time, that was a pretty audacious uh, undertaking or, or statement, right? To say, we're going to define a population objective for this international resource that travels as far from the Arctic all the way down to the Yucatan Peninsula. And we're going to deliver the habitat needed to support that resource at that level. I mean, that's, that's pretty crazy to think about 35 years ago, right? Well, it was just, Dan, what it did uh, is it said, here's the overall population objective. But then it forced people to ask the question of, well, when they're in my part of the world, what's my responsibility for it? So it automatically introduced the need for additional focused science, focused management that uh, people had assumed prior to that, um, but really hadn't done so in as explicit a way as we've seen since. Hey, Dale, one thing just popped into my head, um, and you're talking about over a 35, almost 40-year you know, span of um, updating and modifying this this massive international plan how has technology assisted or even changed i mean you've been you've been following along with this and you know kind of on the ground level how has technology as far as even what the way du does work how has that changed the way that the uh, NAWAMP kind of approaches some of these things everything from gis to transmitters to you know these are some of the things that we talk on other podcasts but how is that that new technology being implemented into NAWAMP you know, we early on, as you might imagine, had, you know, two or three primary tools. Um, you know, certainly one was uh, just our survey efforts. And those survey efforts on the breeding grounds and continuing, of course, even today um, uh, to establish the um, condition of those populations. Again, if you're going to have a population objective, you've got to have a way to measure it. Um, and those surveys have been improved um, over time. Uh, in fact, there's a, a current effort to reevaluate some of those survey efforts on the breeding grounds. There's been efforts on the wintering grounds to improve uh, from what were traditionally just cruise surveys to now transect surveys that give us much more confidence in the numbers of birds and so on. Um, we've gone through a process of reward band studies to help us understand the nature of recovery rates and reporting rates and so on. So it helps us do a whole lot better job of interpreting from banding data 
survival rates, mortality rates, recovery rates, and those types of things, which are just essential from the harvest management side. The surveys, of course, give us a pretty good idea of the numbers of birds and how they're distributed. There's been advancements in satellite telemetry that now allow us to ask questions, not just at the international scale, but at the local scale with the same bird. And so we'd be able now to match the questions that we have scientifically with the application we have from a management standpoint. And so there's some just incredible changes there. Certainly some of the changes with our computer technology and so on in how we communicate these results. Um, years ago, um, you uh, reported at the beginning of the season uh, what was expected in terms of uh, numbers of birds and distribution and so on, and postseason uh, reported on what the season was like. Nowadays, in real time, people are asking questions. We're able to answer those questions. Uh, there's a plus and minus there, as you might imagine. There's uh, quite a few stories made up that don't have any factual basis but are still spread throughout the Internet. But the, the bottom line, in my view, is that our ability to communicate has improved dramatically as well. We do a whole lot better job these days tracking individuals, um, uh, not individuals as your name, my name, zip code, and all that type of stuff, but instead uh, segments of the population that are hunting, that are supporting conservation, and so on and so forth, and being able to engage them through communication way better than we have in the past. So those are some of the things that come to mind, at least initially. Hey, Dale, thanks a lot for joining us today and, and bringing up the information about NAWAMP. I'm sure, uh, you know, duck hunters and waterfowl enthusiasts uh, all over the place probably picked up a lot of information on this very, very complex topic. Well, I appreciate it. It's always fun to talk about ducks. I'd like to thank Dale Humberg, former Ducks Unlimited chief scientist, for joining us today and talking about NAWAMP and bringing this uh, very important topic to light. Also, thanks to uh, our producer, Clay Barrett, for doing a great job in getting this show out to everyone. And thanks to you, the listener for supporting the DU Podcast and Wetlands Conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.